people celebrated all around the country when the Nuttersalingham family was allowed to go home to Billawheeler in Queensland. They were graced with a visit and a hug from the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. And more importantly, a week or two ago, they received permanent visas. For the first time in more than four years, they can plan their lives with a degree of certainty. But behind the happy headlines, nothing has changed for thousands of others caught up in Australia's cruel and vindictive Operation Sovereign Borders. It's about three months since Labour won, but there's not a word from Immigration Minister Andrew Giles about how he plans to meet the ALP's election pledges. Labour promised permanent visas for those on temporary or safe haven visas to revisit the so-called fast-track system that condemned many asylum seekers to failure and to consider opening the way for refugees to arrive from Indonesia. There's silence from the new government. Meanwhile, they're turning back boats from Sri Lanka and boasting about it. Worse, refugees stuck in Papua New Guinea or on the island of Nauru or stuck in onshore detention centres in Australia or barely surviving among us on bridging visas or in community detention have nothing to look forward to under Labour. Nothing. Albanese has also made it clear that deportations of non-citizens, the so-called 501s, will continue. But the refugee movement won victories even under the coalition, and under Labour it's clear that there are still big battles ahead. To discuss the situation for refugees today, I'm joined by Ian Rintoul. Ian is an activist with the Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney and a member of Solidarity. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm, or Melbourne. So welcome, Ian. Yep, thanks, David. Nice to be with you. So let's look first at Labour's biggest promise. What did they say about the 19,000 or so who are on the temporary visas known as TPVs or CHEVs? And why have they been so silent since May? Well, the TPVs and CHEVs were the, the temporary visas. Um, the, the refugees under the coalition, refugees who arrived by bike could only get temporary visas, temporary protection visas or CHEVs. Uh, Labor promised, it was one of their two promises, but they promised that everyone on TPVs and CHEVs would be granted permanent you know, permanent visas. But as you say, we're you know, a number of months on from uh, May and there's still been no announcement about when permanent visas are actually going to be granted. And it's uh, generated quite a lot of concern and indeed you know, some you know, considerable anger for people who have been forced to wait so long, separated from families, denied you know, family reunion. Their requests to travel are still being denied uh, you know, by, the, by, home, by Home Affairs Department, uh, in spite of Canberra saying that the, those, the, the requests should be agreed to. And there's no announcement, no indication about when that is going to, going to happen. I mean, it's like, I think, so many other things to do with, you know, Labor and the, and the refugee policies. Um, in spite of the fact they made the promise, they're still, you know, captured by their overall commitment to, you know, Operation Sovereign Borders and to maintaining the policies of deterrence that were associated with that. And so I think if there's a singular thing at the moment, is it is really their concern about, the, about boat arrivals, the fact that there are boats arriving 
you know, from Sri Lanka uh, that are being that are being turned back. But I think uh, Labor is paralysed by its concern that if it grants you know permanent visas um, and there are boats arrive you know, subsequent you know to that to that announcement, uh, they'll be open to the allegations from the coalition and from the you know Murdoch press that they put sugar back on the table, you know, is the old expression that somehow granting permanent visas to people who are in Australia is going to invite, you know, the return of boats. So I think uh, the, the Labor will get around to it. Ultimately, I'm quite sure of that, but they're exceedingly cautious about doing it and how it will be done, you know, ultimately. Well, this question of permanency seems to be probably the biggest single issue right now for all kinds of refugees. And just this week, for example, the Afghan community held vigils in four state capitals, which called for, among other things, permanent visas. So how many people are living in a state of total uncertainty and what's life like for them? If, well, if you include the, t- the TPVs and Chevs and all the people who are on uh, bridging visas and all the people on expired visas, um, I don't know that there's actually an accurate an, an accurate uh, count um, of that of that number, but I think it would be in the vicinity of uh, forty thousand, you know, people all you know all together. Uh, so you've got the the two thousand who still haven't still waiting for decisions. They're on bridging visas. You've got twelve hundred around maybe twelve and thirteen hundred who are from Papua New Guinea and Nauru who are in in Australia who are mostly on bridging visas. Some still in community tension, and you've got you know, an unknown number, but, you know, you would have to say to be in the vicinity of, you know, 10,000, 12,000 uh, who are on expired visas. That, that, it could be considerably more, actually. But you think of the, the last nine years of the numbers of rejections of Tamils, of Afghans, of Iranians, many, many of them are, are in the community on, unlawfully, effectively, on um, expired visas. So there's a large number of people that are in extremely difficult circumstances, you know, in the, you know, in the, in the community. The bridging visas, um, I think that's one of the things that uh, people who went to see Giles and um, Claire O'Neill, you know, the first parliamentary sitting of the new Labor government, were hoping that they would, there would be some indication that the government would relent on the bridging visas. You know, that they, at the moment they're granted for six months and every six months they have to be renewed. That, of course, is you know, a bureaucratic nightmare and on top of that, you, the Medicare cards are associated with the bridging visas expire. When the bridging visas expire, they've got to renew, you know, Medicare cards. So they were hoping that there would be some indication uh, that the that there would be at least 12 month visas, or there'd be a way of granting bridging visas um, as a way in, for, in, for some some people they're effectively granted until there's a final determination, which just means they've got you know ongoing bridging visas, which would make life. You know, a lot, a lot easier for people. But the, there's no indication that the government. In fact, I suppose it's a push. put it the other way. Uh, you know, that there's every indication that the government is not interested in uh, doing something about the six-month uh, bridging visas. And again, it's for the same for the same reasons. Uh, they're they're concerned that to do anything uh, that would make it easier for the people uh, who are you know presently in Australia um, is going to be seen as somehow rather going. You know, soft on you know on refugees. Um, it'll undermine the overall deterrence policies associated with you know Operation uh, Sovereign Borders. So they're quite willing uh, to see you know tens of thousands of people you know continue to live um, you know precarious existence. And you say precarious 
you mentioned Medicare cards, but my understanding is there are multiple types of bridging visas or classes of bridging visa. And some people can work, some people can study, some people can't, can do one, but not the other. Uh, some people can go to school, but they can't go to university. It's a really Kafkaesque sort of situation, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a nightmare. And, and you've got a, a hodgepodge because um, over the last nine years, uh, home affairs attitude has shifted and changed. Uh, initially, people could get bridging visas with no, but no work rights. Um, they relented after you know after a number of years, and generally, bridging visas that were granted you know at the end of the legal processes were associated with what you know got work rights, but not but not everyone. People are required to actually to apply for the bridging visas. Not everybody knew that. So yes, you've got a, a big mess of people out there with um, and which which again the government shows no interest in in rectifying. Now, one of the categories of people who are really in limbo are those who came by boat after July 2013, and they're either interchangeing onshore or offshore uh, in Papua New Guinea or on Nauru, or as you say, they're living here on, on bridging visas. And we're talking about people who are often referred to as the Medivac refugees because they were brought here under the short-lived Medivac legislation for medical treatment. They often didn't receive that medical treatment, but that's what the technical reason why they were brought here. Those people are really in dire straits. There are schemes to allow refugees to move to New Zealand or the US or Canada. How viable are they and how many people are actually going to be able to take advantage of them? Well, New Zealand is the easiest one. New Zealand said that they'll take um, you know 450, 150 uh, each year for three for three years. The US has said it will take up to 1,250, but it's not clear yet how many of those um, will actually be will actually be filled. Uh, Canada, there's no you know absolute uh, you know quota. It depends upon the actual applications you know mm. that are you know that are made. But from memory, you're talking around to eight, between eighty and ninety people who have been you know accepted to Canada. You know so far there are some others in the you know in the pipeline. But I showed the easiest way to understand it though is that um, even if even if you add all those up and um, the, and all the places are actually. Filled, um, there's still between 500 and 600 people uh, who are of that the category of people who were sent to Nauru and Manus Island who are not going to have a permanent resettlement place in Australia, New Zealand, you know, Canada, you know, all the all the US. And again, it's another group of people that so far the Labor government has shown you know no interest in actually you know addressing. There is a, a, a you know very a very big problem, and in fact, that one of their concerns, um, you know, the reason that they're they're not willing to relent in any way over the bridging visas is that they don't. So again, to put it in the in the in the other terms, that then they want to make sure, in the same way the coalition uh, did, that there are no policies which would encourage people to actually stay in Australia, you know, so that they're actually effectively pushing people, you know, to take places in New Zealand, you know, Canada or US if that's if that's available to them. Uh, but of course, the situation is is not always that uh, you know that straightforward. Uh, you look at new people who some some people who are previously on 
Nauru and Manus Island have actually been in Australia since 2014, 2015. So people have got fam- you know, have got families here. Even the people who've come, you know, with the the uh, kids off, everyone off, uh, you know, Nauru, you know, campaign, have now got uh, you know children in Australia, children who are going to school, uh, people who've got jobs, people who've got you know kind of connections, and they're talking about uprooting those people uh, to send them to. The U.S. or to or to Canada or New Zealand for that matter, um, and to begin, you know, life, uh, you know, again, uh, separated from all the connections they've made in Australia, from the community connections they, you know, they may have, and uh, you know, and to you know, restart a life in in other places, and that's a, that's a very real difficulty uh, for you know many of them with um, young families. So there are people, obviously, who many people around the country who protested for the Medivac refugees to be freed in Kangaroo Point in Brisbane, in Darwin, in Melbourne, outside first the Mantra Hotel, then the Park Hotel. And there was a real celebration that finally some of those those refugees were freed, some of them, in a sense, very high-profile refugees. And people should not think that the battle is over for those men. Yeah, no, long, a long way from the battle uh, being over. In some ways, there's a whole new battle which is their, you know, their right to stay, their right to, you know, build lives in Australia. I mean, the the refugee action co- collectives, coalitions, you know, refugee action groups around Australia, you know, argued from the outset, you know, that you know people who are sent to Manus and Nauru should be brought to Australia. They should be granted permanent visas here to build lives in the country where they first sought asylum back in, uh, you know, in 2013. And that still remains, you know, the fight. I mean, the idea that, you know, some of the people, as you say, became very prominent because of the, their role in the struggles inside the mantra, inside the Park Hotel, Kangaroo Point, um, and the detention centres, you know, for that matter, um, are now the people who are likely to be sent you know, offshore, at least the government is saying uh, that if you want, you know, per, a, you know, permanent, you know, resettlement, you you are not going to get that you know, in Australia. So their their lives are going to, are going to continue to be uh, precarious unless you know that uh, you know that policy that policy changes. I think it, it maybe it also impinges on one other thing that you that maybe come up in an earlier question, and that is the people who are still on Papua New Guinea and you know and Nauru. Because there are still around what just just over two hundred people altogether, you know, still on Manus and, and Nauru. Some of those people, perhaps the majority of those people, have actually got commitment to go to the U.S. or to you know, or to Canada. We have to see uh, how many of them will go. You know, will go to New Zealand. Some of those people who have been accepted to the U.S. were accepted four years ago. I've got no indication about when that's likely to come through. I mean, the, the, for the last two years, we've heard that. The U.S. process was actually ending, you know, at the end of, you know, 220, at the end of 221. Um, it, the rumours again, it's going to end at the, you know, 2022. Uh, there's no reason why those people are still on the Rue and Papua New Guinea when they could be brought here. We're talking about 200 people could be evacuated, you know, brought to Australia, and um, even if even if some of them subsequently decided to go to you know, New Zealand or to Canada, that's up to them. But they should they should be in Australia with the uh, the offer of permanent residency in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. And the numbers we're talking about are so small, it makes it very clear that what's at stake is something much bigger than practicalities, that this is about core politics. And I mentioned Operation Sovereign Borders. Labour made it clear from day one that they're as committed to turning back the boats as the coalition was, 
Claire O'Neill went to Sri Lanka, part of the aid package there for the corrupt uh, regime that uh, the people have been rising up against in Sri Lanka were GPS devices to put on Sri Lankan fishing boats so they could be tracked in case they were coming towards Australia. It's now revealed that Australia is going to provide fuel for the Sri Lankan Navy so that they can monitor refugees. It's quite clear there's something core in Labour's politics and indeed in coalition's politics, but in Labour's politics, now they're the government, is this isn't about numbers, it's not about dollars, it's about something very fundamental. So why is Labour so committed to aping the coalition in support of Operation Sovereign Borders? Um, I think there's probably two aspects to that uh, to that question. I mean, one is just a straight out, you know, electoral question that this the Albanese government has bought into the same argument that that uh, Rudd uh, bought into that somehow or other the question the refugee question is something which favours the uh, you know the coalition that it's impossible to be you know to get elected on a you know with a pro refugee policy. Now you know I think that's you know, quite uh, quite disputable, but nonetheless inside the Inside the Labor Party, um, well, maybe there's certainly there's plenty of dissidents inside the Labor Party uh, in terms of its members. But in time, the you know the the Parliament and the people who are running the Labor Party, they're very committed to the idea that you need to be you know harsh on refugees to actually you know be elected. And I think it's also that partly I think it's connected to the uh, weight of the you know of the media. Uh, of the you know the extent to which the coalition's arguments you know get you know uh, get echoed in that you know in, in the media and the, you know the Murdoch media in particular perhaps uh, that you know anything that the idea of going against Operation Sovereign Borders uh, would bring you know such a, an outpouring of, of opposition that the you know that the Labor Party wouldn't you know wouldn't able to be elected on a pro refugee policy. Now I think actually the story of the Rudd government itself actually you know disputes that but perhaps that's another another question I was certainly elected in 2007 on a pro-refugee position you know the other other aspect is the wider aspect of uh, which is to do with everything with labor in labor in government they're committed to running the capitalist system and the and the, and the consequences you know, inevitably flow, flow from that so all the horrors that being experienced under the coalition, whether you're talking about you know, Nauru or Papua New Guinea, detention system here, we've discussed you know the misery that's been created uh, by those policies with the, the people who are in Australia, living in Australia, but on you know temporary visas or you know or bridging visas. All those things inevitably follow. You know, so Circo is still running the detention centres. Border Force is still, you know, got management, uh, you know, you know, overarching management, you know, of the detention centres. So Labor has just uh, approved in some way or other of a new, a new contract. I mean, it's great to see the end of Canstruct in Nauru, but the new contract, MTC, has got an absolutely horrendous uh, um, reputation in the, not just, not a reputation, I mean, it's a fact. I mean, the allegations of, you know, of torture and abuse in the prisons and, uh, and detention centres that it runs in the United States is, you know, is, is manifest. Um, you know, so the idea that you're going to point, you know, MTC to be running Nauru and not, not, not think you're going to get the same kind of brutality that they've, you know, uh, dished out in, in the United States. It is, so there's an, an inevitable consequence that goes with running capitalism, which goes with running, you know, the system uh, of detention. And that's really, if they're, 
not willing to dismantle it, if they're not willing to, you know, to, to take fundamental steps to, to begin to dismantle, you know, what the, well, what they, the building block, put the building blocks in place in 1992 or with offshore detention um, itself, actually. But there's certainly a horrible, you know, architecture that's been built on their being building blocks by the coalition. That unless they're willing to undo that, then ultimately they're, they're doomed to repeat it. There are a lot of people who have hopes that Andrew Giles, the new immigration minister, is going to be different. And three months in, those hopes are still around. His his political honeymoon clearly isn't yet over. And Giles is someone who has uh, spoken out for refugees in the past as a lawyer, as an MP. He's spoken at rallies and at forums organised by the Refugee Action Collective here in Melbourne because he's a federal MP for a Melbourne seat. He's a clearly a different person to his predecessors, Scott Morrison, Peter Dutton, Alex Hawke. I mean, they hated refugees. In fact, they hate working class people. And that was very, very obvious. But Giles has a different track record and a a different political personality, if you like. With someone like him as minister, why aren't things changing? Um, look, part of the answer is uh, so what just you know, said. You know, said earlier that uh, you know Giles, with um, whatever good heart he might have, is a creature of is captured you know by the system and by the parliamentary system of, you know, which he's uh, you know a willing a willing part and um, not a crystal ball gazer. Um, I think it's quite likely that Andy Giles is going to turn out to be another you know tragic figure of Labor appointees. Actually, there's a long history of Labor appointing people from the left and people who are sympathetic to portfolios like, you know, refugees or, you know, social security or housing or those kinds of things because, um, you know, it's seen as a way electorally, it's seen as a way of trying to, you know, buy off the discontent uh, that was, you know, was readily apparent about refugees under the coalition, you know, for example, and who better to try and sell a policy than someone that people have got illusions in or has got a bit of a, you know, a bit of a reputation uh, for being, you know, having some, you know, genuine genuine concern but I mean unfortunately I think you can already see it with Andrew Giles um you know saw him interviewed over the question of the you know Afghans uh for example and the the enormous number of applications that have been made and the slowness with which those you know applications are being dealt with but more to the point is the the actual numbers we've heard nothing from you know the Labor government about shifting those numbers we're still talking about 16,000 you know 500 over over four years which is less uh, in terms of the absolute numbers of Afghan visas that were included in the humanitarian program for you know the last couple of years but all Andrew could say was you know we're doing our best and doing our best uh, doesn't you know get people on permanent visas in Australia and I think that's the uh, you know that is going to be the bottom line uh, doing the doing the best is not what you need to do if you're going to actually just dismantle a system and that's what I think we've we've seen with the appointment of um, Andrew Giles there certainly is a, a lot of a lot of goodwill at the moment you know people have got you know hope against hope you know that there's some small indication I mean the when the um, the Nadasa Lingam family you know, first of all, we're allowed to return, you know, to Bill Wheeler and now have got the, you know, permanent visas. Um, people clung on to that, you know, so there's some indication that actually all the anomalies which the Nattersingham, you know, family was kind of put forward, well, you know, there's particular arguments about this, you know, Tamil family, you know, there's particular support for it in, for them in 
you know, in Bilawila. But the truth is there are hundreds of, of families exactly like the Nodislingams and exactly the same arguments could be made, you know, for why, you know, they need uh, permanent visas. Andrew Giles is not saying anything about those families. He's not saying anything about the tens of thousands of, you know, single, you know, Tamil men who, you know, can't go back uh, to Sri Lanka are victims of um, the you know, policies you know, that the DFAT and others had in place, that the refugee you know, tribunal you know, had in place that was effectively found you know, against those, those applications. So the, the Afghans, I mean, why are there Afghans still, still in detention? That would seem like a very simple thing you know, that, the, that the minister could actually, uh, actually address. And I think what people hope that, uh, that those things are going to be addressed, they're, they're, they're not being addressed at the moment. I think that's the, you know, that's the, uh, the you know, the overarching message, message which is, you know, coming, uh, coming from Labor. There are a couple of things they're going to do, but there's many, many things which is going to mean, mean that the whole system of offshore detention is going to remain in place. The detention system in Australia is going to, regime is going to remain in place. Now, you mentioned earlier on that Labor made two promises for the election. I actually counted four. Two of them maybe technically aren't promises, but they're part of Labor's national platform. And let's talk about them a little bit, because the first one in particular, I think many people are not quite sure about, and that's the fast track process. Can you explain what the fast track process is and why it's fundamentally flawed? Because I think that helps explain, for instance, why people can arrive by boat from Sri Lanka at Christmas Island or close to Christmas Island and be turned around immediately, apparently without being ever given the chance to make a claim to be refugees. Yeah, there are two slightly different things there. Uh, the actual turnbacks and the screening out, which happens in the turnback process. I mean, the fact they're... they're I mean, tragically, um, the people who arrive by boat and are turned around offshore um, are never even subject to the fast tra- track system you know there is a, a whole you know screening out uh, process which means that they actually uh, never even get to the point of actually being able to make those make their um, you know asylum asylum ap- applications and that's one of the you know fundamental reasons I mean not just like the you know, refugee activists and socialists, you know, oppose the turnbacks and screening out, you know, very respectable Amnesty International and UNHCR even oppose, you know, the turnbacks and, you know, and screening out. The fast track system, I mean, the uh, the coalition, you know, got rid of the, you know, refugee, re- refugee review tribunal and put, <laughs> it's really an, an anomalous name, the fast track system has, you know, turned out to be anything but, uh, you know, but fast. I mean, it's a fast track to rejection. And uh, and what it did was a number uh, a number of things. I mean, first of all, it limited the the decisions that were put forward. Instead of there being you know an actual you know tribunal which was um, concerned to I suppose to you know discover in some ways you know the the, the, the truthfulness of the particular, some particular some investigation into the claims. That was you know very that was limited. So you had you know delegates uh, determined by the you know by the minister who would have the you know sole you know, decision making that very often those uh, decisions could be made you know on the on the papers that were done on you know the su- submissions so very often that the and it was kind of up to the delegate whether an asylum seeker was going to be able to actually give uh, any any evidence or you know or bring other people you know to give evidence for their particular for their particular hearing 
So it, it meant that a whole lot of things about the about you know what people can remember, uh, the circumstances in which the interviews you know take place, um, the ability to bring you know other other evidence to bear was became more and more you know restricted. So even at, at that level, uh, there was kind of a restrictions placed on you know what the delegate is going to hear, what evidence can be adduced, whether they're going to actually hear from the you know from the person uh, themselves. Uh, so that was kind of, I guess, the first element. The, the second element is the, is the uh, over the appeals. I mean, the, the capacity for appeal was also became, you know, much, much restricted. If you're rejected, uh, the scope for appeals um, are also very, you know, very narrow. Uh, so, again, you can't bring any new evidence. So, you, you, even your ability to be able to um, even answer particular questions on the basis of why you've been rejected, you know, those... The system actually limits the possibility of actually making those appeals, addressing concerns that might have been raised about why you were rejected in the first place. And the last thing, I guess, is uh, it's, it, there's always been a problem associated with that, but it is the whole you know, thing about country information uh, that the delegates rely on, provided by DFAT about you know, Afghanistan, about Sri Lanka, about Iran or you know, whatever else are. Obviously tailored, uh, you know, by you know by the government. So as I said earlier, it was a system that's designed to you know fast track rejections. And has Labor said it will look at this again? <laughs> yes, it has. It's definitely policy. Yes, and you're probably right. There probably are you know more than two promises. Uh, Labor has said at least its policy is that it will actually get rid of the fast track system and will you know re-establish mm. something like. The, uh, the you know the refugee review uh, tribunal, but um, yeah, I think perhaps the reason I didn't uh, raise it earlier on is that it's it's not something that's been mentioned at all since the election. No, and the reason I mentioned that this is Labour policy or national platform or whatever is not because I think it's all going to happen, but because it, it's much easier to organise when you know that the door is very slightly ajar rather than completely slammed in your face. It makes it more difficult for the government to reject the arguments from the movement when they've sort of conceded something along the lines themselves. And that's the other topic I wanted to talk about was the situation of refugees trapped in Indonesia. I think we're now talking about something like 13,000. Again, actually, I'm just looking at the wording. Labour has talked about, quote unquote, giving appropriate consideration to UNHCR refugee registrations to assist Indonesia and the UNHCR to work through the backlog and, crucially, subject to Australian vetting processes and sovereignty concerns, Labour will positively consider such refugees for inclusion within the increased humanitarian intake. So again, it's a tiny, tiny crack in the wall, one on which we need to push around can you explain why so many refugees are trapped, what the situation is for them and what our demands should be? Yes, I mean, our, our, our demands about uh, Indonesia, again, are quite, you know, quite straightforward. These people should be able to come, you know, to Australia to make applications um, in, in Australia. I mean, the socialists are opposed to immigration controls, you know, full stop. Uh, I think there's a, you can see, you know, one very... You know, obvious example in terms of what's happening with the Indonesia, with the uh, the asylum seekers and refugees in uh, in Indonesia, because 
the fact that Australia wasn't willing to take people, I mean, ma many people, and there's about half of them are, you know, Afghans, were coming to Indonesia, which was accepted as a, as a transit country that doesn't provide uh, resettlement, you know, in any permanent way. Uh, so people were coming through Indonesia to, uh, you know, to Australia to actually apply for, you know, for refugee status um, in, in Australia. But... When the, when the door was firmly shut in 2014, and that's when Abbott and Scott Morrison as the Prime Minister and Immigration Minister actually put a ban on Australia accepting any refugees, any UNHCR refugees from Indonesia, it meant uh, that, well, it was, you know, uh, it was, it was, you may as well have put up a, you know, a high, a high fence between Indonesia and, you know, and Australia. Of course, it was backed up by Operation Sovereign Borders and, the, you know, turned back by the, you know, by the Navy. But what it meant was that there was simply no way. I mean, the turnbacks, you know, prevented boats, you know, people getting on boats coming to Australia. The ban on accepting UNHCR refugees meant that there was simply, there was no way that people could get, there was no a formal way, official way that people could be found to be refugees and then get resettled. Uh, so it also meant that it effectively shut off because Indonesia, the refugees in Indonesia by and large were seen as Australia's responsibility. So places like Canada and United States or Europe, places that are part of the UNHCR resettlement, by and large, they weren't referred to, you know, to those places because they were seen as Australia's, you know, Australia's responsibility. But since 2014, that avenue has been completely denied to them. And it's right, the, that wording you know, was something which was fought for at Labor, Labor conferences expressly to address you know, that 2014 ban. Um, but, um, but again, uh, where there's been no indication from the, you know, from the government that they're, that they're willing in any way, you know, to look at, at what is going to happen with the, with the refugees in, um, in Indonesia in spite of what's in the, you know, what's in the policy. And again, it, it goes back to some of the things, you know, said earlier, earlier in the interview. Uh, I think Labor is so paralysed that, they, you know, that, that, that anything they do might see, you know, boats, you know, people attempting to get to Australia, you know, by boat, which would invite, you know, sort of the comments from, you know, from Peter Dutton or the, you know, coalition to, you know, go on the offensive, you know, front pages from the Australian about Labor being soft on, you know, soft on refugees. But there's always been an antidote to that, you know, and that is to, that to actually resist it, to actually fight it, to explicitly, you know, oppose it. I mean, tragically, we saw what happened in, you know, in 2008 uh, with, uh, with Kevin Rudd, uh, who, you know, had, had you know, pro-refugee policies, but as soon as the, you know, boats started to come, you know, Rudd adopted the coalition policies, you know, every bit as, you know, as bad as the coalition that he'd, that they'd taken over from. And, you know, that's the tragedy. There's an all, all, all reason why... Andrew Giles and Anthony Albanese could go on the offensive, you know, about about why you know, people in Indonesia should be able to come, you know, to Australia, why people who are on boats coming from Sri Lanka should be able to get to Australia, what was wrong with, uh, you know, with offshore offshore detention. But, so, you know, once you're captured by the system, then, you know, that's not what we hear. It's why we do have, to, we're going to have to build, you know, a movement uh, the same way, we had to build a movement uh, without the movement that was built, you know, during you know, under, under the years of the coalition coalition government. Then nothing, you know, Manus Island and PNG would be intact. Nauru would would be intact. The fact that we've got 
the vast majority of people, not everyone, and that's you know, you know something that's unfinished business. But the vast majority of people are in Australia, even if we haven't got them, you know, permanent visas yet. So there's still you know a lot to fight for, and we are going to have to continue to you know push labour. Okay, perhaps on that note, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time. Okay, no worries, David. Thanks. Mm-hmm.